Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Neomodern. Neomodern treats your photos like art, offering simple, affordable concierge printing and framing. We'll tell you more about Neomodern later in the show. This week, we have a special episode because I went into the field. Jeff, unfortunately, was not involved in this. We're recording the intro and outro to the episode um, afterwards. Um, last Friday, I went down to the southern coast of England to a town called Basham or Basham, depending on whether you're a local or not, where the Basham Gallery had an exhibit of Michael Kenna's photos. Now, I've talked about Michael Kenna a lot. He is literally my favorite photographer. He makes these extraordinary black and white photos, uh, landscapes, minimalist. Um, there, there's something special about it. There was a 45-year retrospective, and I contacted uh, Michael Kenna early this year, and we agreed that I would come down and interview him. The audio quality isn't great because we were in a gallery where sound doesn't muffle and the walls are all plaster. And I think this is really interesting because typically our dynamic is I get out and shoot more often, and you tend to stick close to home, and yet you're the one that's going out and interviewing people in person. So... I love this new dynamic that we have going on. You get to talk to interesting people, and I just get to listen to it and then go shoot you know, sunrises and stuff. Yeah, the interview took about 45 minutes, and I've cut about five minutes out um, for the podcast. But we spent about two hours talking, and he even bought us ice cream afterwards. So, Well, if I had known there was ice cream involved, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Okay, so let's go to the interview. Uh, I recommend that you listen to this with headphones. The audio quality really isn't great. Do check the show notes because there are literally dozens of photos that we're referring to. There's a link to each photo that's in the exhibit. For some that were in the exhibit but that aren't on the gallery website, there are links to photos on Michael Kenna's website. There was a little bit of a glitch that there were a couple of photos that they wanted and couldn't get, and so they had put them on the website and they didn't take them off. So if you're listening to this on a bicycle or in a car, you might want to listen to Get It Home. Look at the photos, all the links, especially in the parts where um, Michael is talking about the composition of the photos. And, and if you care about composition, this is really going to be a masterclass. I'm in Bosom on the southern coast of England at the Bosom Gallery with Michael Kenna. Michael, it's wonderful to meet you. It's great to be here. Wonderful to meet you too. Thanks for taking time to talk to me. Michael has a... Michael has an exhibition at this gallery. There are, what, 40-odd photos covering the entire period of your career, which there, there seem to be books, retrospectives of your career, 20 years, 40 years, or up to 45 years now? It's up to 45 years, I'm counting, yes. And, and what's, yeah. what's year one? What does that count from? I think from 1973, because is, is, uh, I was at the London School of Printing, London College of Printing, and that's, I suppose, when I first became really interested in landscape photography. So the photograph you see up there reflecting is that's from 1973, and then there's, I don't know if there's one from 74, but there's certainly one from 75 somewhere, and then it continues on. So that's kind of what the date that I use. So actually I'm in my 46th year now. Okay. Um, and there's actually one way you can tell the oldest photos from ones after a certain date. This is a question I was going to get to later, but let's say now. Most of your photos are square, but the older ones are in 3-2 format, so 35mm film. Yes. And the square ones you shoot on a Hasselblad. Why did you change? Was it a compositional reason, or that you just wanted to use a Hasselblad? Uh, I've been through many camera models in my, in my career. I started with the Voigtlander, which is my wonderful camera I bought for I mean, £25 with this multiple lenses. It was, it was great. It was a rangefinder. And then I moved through various 35mm cameras up until the, really the mid-80s. Uh, I experimented with different formats, you know, 4x5, 8x10, 2.25, 6x7. So I, I experimented with many, many different formats. Uh, it was really in the mid-80s that I, I, I started to use Hasselblad. And I think it was because there was a certain predictability about the 35mm format somehow. You had to make choices right from the beginning. Should it be vertical? Should it be horizontal? And things kind of seemed to be all squashed in somehow. And the two and a quarter, I got it first of all with a waist level viewfinder, so everything was back to front. Uh, it was a completely different uh, format for me, and it, it, it made me look more abstractedly at the landscape, I think, rather than saying that's a tree or that's a person, this is a building. It just became forms and lines and shapes and densities within that rectangle. And there was something of a breakthrough for me. And I started making, you know, big prints, 16 by 20 prints for a while. Um, as often happens, I settled back into a kind of 
nah, this is not really where I want to go. So my print size got reduced again. And now I find that I can exhibit work from 1973, 1975, Big Ben over here, along with photographs from 2018, 2019. And they all sit quite happily in this one big family. Um, They're presented very much the same way. I don't think my vision has changed that much in 45 years. I've gone in many, many different circles. I've done many, many different bodies of work. Um, But they still relate to the landscape and the juxtaposition with really human objects, things we leave behind, the, the presence, the absence, the, the kind of the, the abstract forms that, that bounce off each other, that sometimes fight with each other, sometimes they get along quite well together. But with one recent exception, no humans. No, no not many humans. <laughs> There's a few birds flying around. <laughs> Lots of birds. Lots of yes, birds. Yes. But uh, we'll talk later about your book, Rafu, oh, yes, which was released yes, last year. Of course, yes. Your first book of well, of pictures of humans, Absolutely, isn't it? Yes, okay. yes. Why did you... Well, let, let's talk about how you shoot. So some, some, many, how many of your photos are long exposures? So we're talking 8, 10, 12 hours. Obviously, you're not going to get someone to sit for a portrait for 10 hours. No, no, yes. Uh, I started as, a, as an early morning photographer. I just loved the morning light. It was so calm, still, silent. No, it was very beautiful. Everything was fresh. And uh, I think at a certain point in time, I realized I wasn't being productive enough, and I started getting up earlier, going to bed later, and then I <laughs> branched out to be a, something of a night photographer. Sometimes I'd stay up all night, you know, photographing. Uh, so I'm known in various different places as a night photographer, as a morning photographer, as a landscape photographer, a different urban landscape photographer. Um, some of the exposures go for eight hours overnight. Um, many of the exposures are instant also, so it's difficult to know. You could look at any long, any one wall, and you can say instant, five minutes. So that looks instant. like a long. That's an instant. No, that's no, a long. This is probably that's from five, ten minutes, minutes, isn't it? Five or ten minutes. Okay. Yes, you know, you can see when the clouds move, when the water yeah. moves, when you want something specific. But in a case like this, for example, of the fence running up the hillside, there's no advantage in a long exposure. You don't really gain anything because yeah. it stays exactly the same. So you you make choices. You know, here it's a longer exposure because you can see there's there's movement, there's movement up here too. But here is a bird in the sky. That's obviously an yeah. instant exposure. And there's one with a moonrise over there. Yes. How many hours was that? That's not. That's maybe an hour and a half. Yeah. It's the moon does one come, and two hours. The moon does come up pretty quickly. It's, it's actually going down. Ah, and I okay. saw it when I was driving around this lake, and I said, I have to photograph that. So. But I was constricted by that time with where, where the moon was, and uh, and I just I waited, and uh, and it's you know it's a lovely luxury to watch a moon yeah. slowly descend and to yeah. be very quiet and alone and you know, outside in the landscape at night. And so, what do you do when you're doing an eight-hour exposure? Do you sleep? Do you ah. read? Do you listen to music? All of those things. Okay. Uh, often I leave cameras out, and uh, I go to bed. And I get up, you know, hour before sunrise, and I pick the camera up. I but don't know. You mean you go to bed near the camera? You don't leave expensive Hasselblads in the landscape? Yeah, often in fields and you know places where people don't get to. Okay. And you know, I have lots of funny stories. I don't know how much time you have. <laughs> I have left cameras and come back and have not been there. Yeah. For example, and I've had to hunt them down and found them in police stations and so forth. So you know, you never know what. Sometimes they've fallen over in the wind. You know, different things happen, but it, it's. Ooh, I, what I really love about I mean, many things I love about film photography silver photography which I insist upon doing still silver photography yes is that it's it's unpredictable yeah. you don't know what you're getting which which I love I've experimented with digital I you know, took digital cameras with me and photographed landscapes and there's something of that instant gratification that, that doesn't appeal to me and there's something that is it's so kind of easy to change it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the same flavor for me. I like the process, the journey of, of silver, the silver process. Yeah. You know, I, being out I, at night for eight hours, not knowing if you got anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got to be slightly mad, I'm sure. But and then you still <laughs> have to wait for the film to be processed. I wait for the film to be processed. Because you don't process your own film, do you? Not usually. No, it's, right. it's just I just found it to be not very creative part of the process. Yeah. And given, you know, the, the amount of time I have at my disposal... It was better if I gave it to a lab. And so I have labs in you know, London, Paris, New York, Seattle, Tokyo, you know, basically places I photograph, and I give them the film. Yeah. Oh, so you don't have to worry about taking it through the airport? Um, whenever possible, I try not to take it through airports, but sometimes I do. I yeah. have to, but 
Um, you know, the ma major hub cities, they, 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 most of them still have one or two labs, decent labs that can process film. Yeah. When I emailed you a few months ago, you had said, um, I had asked you for an interview, and you'd said you'd been traveling a lot and you just wanted to get back into the dark room. Oh, yeah. It seems like that's your favorite part of the process, isn't it? No, I don't think. No, I think the, the whole journey is my favorite part. I mean, this, you can't beat being out, you know, alone in the landscape, you know, wondering, searching finding, discovering, you know, these miraculous phenomena that just happen and you're there and you're experiencing it. And, and, and so a fantastic. lot of times you're just driving around and you chance upon something and stop your car and... Sometimes, yes, or sometimes I, you know, I walk for 10 hours, you know, I just find places. Um, it depends where I am, depends, uh, mm. you know, for example, in, in, in Japan, in Hokkaido, that I photograph a lot, when I first started going in 2002, I went on my own. And I just did it all sorts of trouble. My cameras would be soaking wet because, you know, I'd be up to my neck in snow. You know, the car would drive off the side of this, the road and I wouldn't know and I couldn't get the car back. It's, I'd get lorries to be pulling me on the... It was just ridiculous. So, so I you eventually got assistant. a guide. Then I got a guide. Ah. And then since then I've had this same guide. Yeah. He has snowshoes. You know, he has an umbrella for the snow. He has four-wheel yeah. drive. All this sort of stuff that you need. And so he will take me places, right. and then we just you know, then we wander and, and find things to photograph. So you don't have a, a proper photographer's assistant, someone to I have give, one. give you your the backs of your Hasselblad no, with no, film. I, I, and I do pretty much everything myself. You know? Yeah, I have one assistant in in Seattle, Mark Silver, who's been with me now for eighteen, twenty years. I'm not sure how long. So he does a lot of the. You know, the Dry mounting, the retouching, the you know, shipping, the inventory, scanning things. I mean, basically, I get to the, the the really juicy, interesting part. You know, I get to photograph and I get to print. Yeah. Those are the main two things. And I do yeah. love, you know, back to your original question. I do love being in the dark room. Yeah. I can spend hours and hours because it's a, it is another aspect of discovery. Even if you have a negative, you don't quite know what is there. It's, it's it's like raw material, and, and you work with it. It's it's pliable. It's 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 almost because you have a lot of options in the dark room, you don't do. you? Yes, yes. Um, my my first exposure to photography was I was in high school and I had to take a shop class and I didn't want to do wood shop or auto shop and they had yeah. a photography class mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember what kind of cameras we had but we took black and white photos and we went yes. in the dark room yeah. I learned how to solarize photos oh, which oh. is something you yes. do once right um, <laughs> and over the years I did a bit of film photography and I was fascinated and then life changed and I moved on yes. yeah. um, but it, it is there, there is a it, it's an interpretation isn't it when you do that mm -hmm. um, you, you said earlier you, you tried different sizes how did you settle on this particular size because this, this to me what are they seven and a seven and a half seven inch? and three quarters seven and three quarters basically this to me is the size of a mm -hmm. photograph for one person to look at personally mm -hmm. as opposed to something in a museum for ten people to look at mm -hmm. is that part of your reasoning well, you can have one person in the museum looking at them, too. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the um, gallery but, here, individually. I, I, but it, it looks more like an intimate experience. Well, it is an intimate. And, you know, we all, we all see about 35 degrees in focus. It's just our natural yeah. animal ability to do that. So it's, it's natural that you get to about 10 inches away from here to really see it. Yeah. And you can look into it and you can be a part of it. You're, you're immersed in the landscape. The larger the print gets, the further away you go. It becomes less intimate, less engaging. And I want these to be almost individual conversations with individual collectors, people, viewers, whoever goes. But you know, as I say, you know, if, it, if a print is in a museum, you can still wander up to it. I, mean, I, I love small, tiny, jewel-like um, creations anyway. So it's, I experimented with I mean, I even did kind of almost wall-sized prints for a while just to kind of see... Uh, I did a lot of 16 by 20s. This still feels like the correct size, the most appropriate size for my work, yeah. for, for my particular vision. Not for everybody, of course, but for, for the way I see this is the, the way I like to, to present them. I grew up in New York City, and I worked for a couple of years near the Museum of Modern Art. Oh, yes. And I would yeah. go in there often, and my favorite painting was Dolly's Persistence of Memory, yes. which is, yeah. what, about an 8 by 10 um, yeah. in landscape format. Yes. Yeah. And you'd have to get up really close right. to see it, and then you'd see it. If it was bigger, like mm -hmm. Guernica, Picasso's yes. Guernica, yeah. mm -hmm. it, it's imposing, but it doesn't make mm -hmm. you enter the, the image, Quite. does it? Yes. So you're that's you're the looking thing at you, it more than being part of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in the dark room, you don't just print. 
print these, you spend a lot of time dodging and burning, don't you? And that's, yes, that's really the technique that makes them yours. Yes, yes. Well, reality doesn't necessarily conform to the way I want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a way of, uh, you could call it manipulation, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, I would say it's more of a guidance system that you're able as a printer to guide the viewer into specific areas where you want that viewer to go to. And uh, it's a matter of so balancing. So th this elements. one that's on the wall, so this is a bit of a low wall uh, yes. at Mont Saint-Michel. Mm -hmm. If I look at it, it's dark in the lower left and lower right corners, and the wall is leading to the left. So is that your mm -hmm. goal, is to, is to create that motion to make the eye travel there? I think with many of my images, I have... Uh, I have pathways, I have directions, I have tunnels of trees, whatever, you know, so I have boardwalks that go out because I'm creating something of a stage for the viewer to go onto and to be on, the, be on their own, to be solitary. And so this, yes, you go from, I mean, naturally, you, in, a, in a black and white photograph, you go from dark to light. It's just the way we see. Yeah. So naturally, you come in here and you wander along and you kind of go out here. This is the lightest. It's not by coincidence. That's yeah. the lightest part. Yeah. Everything goes, you, guides you to that corner. And out into a place where you don't know what's there. And I love that, that there's a question mark. So, yeah, it's not an answer, it's yes. a question, there's a mystery, yeah. there's a, mm -hmm. it, it's open-ended. Yeah, and if rather than actually inquisitive animals, we want yeah. to see what's behind there. And that, just that enigma, that illusion, that kind of use of our own creative imagination is very yeah. important to me. So you did shoot color in the early years, I know. I did, yes. Have you destroyed all those photos? I came across a whole box of transparencies recently, actually, particularly from my student years. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, my senior thesis at, at, at school was about body motion studies. So we had all these models come in. Like Moybridge's things with the horses and... Yeah, like Moybridge, but more like Harold Edgerton. Okay. I would say with stroboscopes. And yeah. Put, you know, I put, had pools of water with photograph reflectance and different colors and... I had models, kind of like puppets, and it was a wonderful third-year project yeah. uh, that, that I did. Now everything was in color, and I photographed landscapes in color too for for a long time. But so, what again, made was, you make the correct choice to go into black and white? Note, I say that because I personally love black and white photography yeah. because it doesn't tell me everything. I think a lot of my work is about distillation. It's about reducing things that are, that are bare essentials to eliminating the inessential, uh, editing. Um, and I think black and white, generally, you have to use your imagination more. You can create your own colors. It's more, it's quieter, it's more harmonious, it's more meditational or something. It's, it's, it's almost like a haiku poem that, that you, know, you, can, you can present a few essentials and allow the imagination of the viewer to fill in the rest. I personally find color is just little. There's too much. We see in color all the time. It's kind of it becomes a reflectance of reality, and it doesn't allow our imagination. In, in the darkroom, also, I found it. I mean, I was a color printer. You know, just because I had to at certain points in my career, I can deal with color. I can print color. It's a different I, process, isn't different it? Process. Because you know, if the sky is just five yeah. five percent off and you know cyan or yellow, it's it's gone. Yeah, you know, and, 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 and we can recognize that. We can yes. notice if the skin's wrong, if the right. sky's wrong, if the grass is too yellow. Right. We notice that. Yeah. But here, you, I can print skies black or white or gray. I can do anything I want, and somehow our imagination allows it still to be real. You know, we can we can say, oh yeah, that could that could exist somehow. I've been thinking a lot about black and white photography recently. I've been trying to write an article. I don't like the word semiotics, but mm -hmm. my article is about the semiotics, about the the, the 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 weight of a black and white image. We have the beginning of the history of photography in black and white. Yes. Then yes. color comes along, but black and white still has this weight as reportage, as news photography, mm -hmm. because newspapers, at least in the states, didn't. Mm -hmm turned to color until what the 80s for USA Today the yeah. 90s for New York right. Times yes. so yeah. black and white photography seemed more serious yes. even though we had Life magazine and all that mm -hmm. but now I think it's this most things are in color <laughs> well, but <laughs> also you have black and white but also it's so easy so to make much. a black and white photo with yeah. an Instagram filter or yes, whatever of course, of course. Um, mm -hmm. my camera is here and I have it set to black and white mode when yes. I walk around to shoot photos because mm -hmm. I find it more interesting mm -hmm. to see that abstraction Yes. Then mm -hmm. to be distracted by the colors in some ways. Mm -hmm. I was listening to an interview that you did with someone on YouTube, and, and I found that there was a really interesting statement that you made. And do you agree that your photography is minimalist? 
Ah, uh, some of it, certainly, yes. Because this is a word that represents a certain kind of photography these days, isn't it? And, and you said, um, I feel like I instigated the sticks in water school of photography. Ah, yes. And, and every time I see those, I keep thinking, who are the people who go around and put all the sticks in the waters for people to do long exposures, right? <laughs> yes, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I mean, I, I look back at my, my, student, my student days and I have all these photographs of sticks in water or pebbles in water or things things in water with you know, long exposures even, even way back then and at the time it was not a subject to be photographed yeah People didn't do it <laughs> I mean, yeah. why photograph sticks in water like made no sense at all uh, but now it seems that you know everybody photographs sticks in water and i was it was a, it was a tongue-in-cheek it was a, it was a jest when i said i feel like i'm but it's true in a way <laughs> because know. it has become a bit of a cliche you it see is. in photography magazines everywhere. how to do that it's everywhere now. The, the other day on instagram yep. i saw a photo almost exactly like that one yep. i'm pointing to the one of the fence in yes. Hokkaido in yep. the snow right probably mm-hmm. the same fence taken on a different angle could be i, I wonder yep. if the person actually just copied your photo and well, I think you know these days, uh, particularly there's a, there's a big business in uh, in in photo tours, yeah, and guiding people around yes. places, you know, like in Ansel Adams, you know, they could guide them around Yosemite. Say, you know, Ansel photographed this at this time of the day, and then here we walked up this mountain, and you can see how the waterfall looks now in this light. And um, I find, particularly in Hokkaido, there are so many guide, guided tours now of places, and and. Again, I, I don't want to point fingers at myself at all, but many of them are, you know, Michael Kenner photographed this particular yeah. tree. Yeah. And it, it, to the point that it, it, it the, unfortunately, the landscape suffers. There's yeah. a few instances of where the farmer has actually cut down trees because they've become so popular that, you know, whole groups, coach loads of tourists come to photograph these trees and they tramp through the field. Even if there are signs all the way around saying, do not go on the field. They'll go through the field and take photographs, and the farmers cut the tree down. Well, let's talk about one, the Kusharo Lake tree, which I'm pointing at up on the wall. This, there's a very interesting story behind this. Mm-hmm. Tell me. Well, tell me. Because <laughs> you, you shot hundreds of photos yes, of this tree, yes, didn't yes. you? And, and you've published I, I, a number of versions of it. Yeah, I, I found it, first of all, I think it was in 2002. I just was in, uh, get, that's, they had some other version of it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was just—it was just a beautiful tree, and I was walking by on, along this lake, and I came across it. And, and you know, like with many of my photographs, I never quite connect at the moment of photographing. You know, I, I realize myself that I cannot predict. Like, you know, this is going to be a great photograph. I hope they're all going to be great, but most of the but time. But since you can't not. see it until the negatives are done, when processed, it's processed, yeah, yes, I've, it's happened so many times. But I photographed this particular tree. And, uh, Kusharo Lake tree and, and it came out it just looked like some this bonsai beautiful just gorgeous woodblock print somehow I printed it and then the following year I was in Hokkaido and I thought you know I really should go back to that same place because that's one of the things I do is I go back and back and back to the same places I photograph because I find that they're always slightly different and I can not necessarily improve on them but I can make variations of a theme in a sense so I went back and I photographed the tree again completely differently and it lost some of its limbs and I found that I just had this connection with this tree. As I, I like to have connections with trees throughout the world, but this particular tree. Yeah, you shoot a lot of trees. I do. Yeah. And, um, and I went back for many, many years. And every time I went to Hokkaido, I tried to find this tree and I tried to photograph it again. Um, but seven or eight years later, it was, it was eventually cut down because it was on the side of a lake and it was in a campsite, which I didn't actually know because I only went there in the winter. Right. There was nobody there. And it wasn't cut down because people were photographing. No, I know, no, no. I don't. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that on my conscience too. It, it is a lovely yeah. image. Mm-hmm. It's it's stark. It's mm-hmm. it it. There's there's the idea of an old person. There's the idea of of age and wisdom. There's that contrast yes. with mm-hmm. the stark background. There's so much in that simple image. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neomodern is not just a frame store, but a unique, high-quality service for professionals and consumers set up to help make your images the best they can be. All their staff are photographers and Adobe experts, and Neomodern works with you to make gorgeous works from your images that you'll be proud to hang on your walls. You can drop into Neomodern's gallery in San Francisco, bringing your photos in any format. You can make an appointment with Neomodern's printmasters, or you can get the Neomodern concierge experience online at neomodern.com. 
Neomodern provides museum-quality printing and framing at affordable prices. Visit neomodern.com, drop into the gallery at 1898 Union Street in San Francisco, or call 415-901-3411. And if you come to the Union Street Gallery, you can always see an assortment of the Rubin collection of classic photographs on display, along with selected works from customers. One more thing. Use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get 20% off anything on the Neomodern site. You mentioned that you have used digital cameras. Do you use digital cameras at all now? Or do, when you take snapshots of your family, do you do long exposures of them? <laughs> no, no, they, were, they wouldn't stay in place long enough. Uh, I mean, I have, you know, I have a phone, so when I wander around... Uh, I'm, Nowadays, when I'm photographing something, you know, I could be making long exposure. I would usually take a quick snap because it, it, it gives me the location. Uh, Sometimes I, you know, play around with it and just edit it just to see what it vaguely looks like. It's never the same as the as the, the real thing on film, but but yes, I do that photo, and I like to post things to my family and you know family chats and so they know what I am. But it, so you're you know, not entirely anti-digital. No, no. I mean, it could be you know the meal I'm eating and say, oh look, you know, happy breakfast is whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're not going to go on Instagram and start posting pictures of food. Not yet. No, no, okay. no. <laughs> but have you ever considered doing a book of photos? I mean, you've done a book mm-hmm. of photos taken with a Holger. Yes. Um, have mm-hmm. ever, ever considered doing a book of photos that you've shot with a digital camera? Uh, I, have, I haven't considered it because I've never put in enough effort to do that. I mean, I recently actually got together my phone pictures for a, a project. Uh, one of my agents asked me specifically and I put together 40 or 50 images, and they, they, look, they look very good. Mm. Um, it's different somehow. Yeah. You know, it works well, when, fine on, on Instagram and on the phone, on the computer, but when you actually come to print them, they just fall apart. Yeah, and when you've been no doing this substance. for decades, and yeah. the printing process is so important, mm-hmm. um, I can't see it. I mean, it would change the perception people have of your work, in a way. Yes. Yeah, but that's... You know, life is like that. You know, okay. you're always you're always making some sort of variation changes, and life changes. It's okay. I, I, that wouldn't worry so much. Be, before we look at individual photos, I want to just mention um, some of your titles of photos are quite interesting. Some of them are a number of things, and there's one of them yeah. that I spotted on your website that is 475 birds that you shot in Durham, England. You actually counted all the birds yeah. rather than just saying a flock of birds. Well, I have you know, I have a I have a lot of, uh, of, of titles that, that have, you know, flocks of birds or murder of crows or whatever they are or things like that. But um, I'm actually putting a, a bird book together. I'm in the process. So I've been printing uh, birds for the past six months. A publisher in, in France who just did Penti Similati, beautiful book, gorgeous book, uh, wanted me to say, you know, I notice you have many birds in your photographs. Yeah. You know, you want to look through your archive? And I said, wow, well, probably don't have that many. But... Looking through my archive all the way back, you know, 45 years, it's amazing how many photographs of birds I have. So yeah. this book will Birds, come out. trees, book, yep. sticks in water. Yeah, this book will come out in the fall. Okay, okay. So we're going to look at a photo here, which is named... It's Huangshan, but I don't know what study it's, it's, it's from Huangshan. Huangshan Study 25. Huangshan Study 25. And this, is, this to me is an extraordinary composition. There will be links in the show notes so you can look at all these photos. I, I love the composition here, the way you've taken that central tree and you've put it so far on the side. And so it draws the eye to the right. Then you look down to the left and you look into the valley. It's like there's, there's intense mystery. Was it, was it when you saw this? Was it obvious that you needed to put that tree like that on the right? <laughs> I think you said it all already. Uh, <laughs> I find when I photograph, I experiment. Um, I, I talked about the unpredictable nature of still the photography before, so I, usually I do the predictable photograph to begin with, which may be having this in the center or to the left, because we yes, we left to right. We are in China. I mean, photographing in Asia a lot, and I've noticed Good there's point. a different. Yeah different perspective that goes on and it's it's greatly influenced my work in fact that there is a right to left or the bottom to top way of viewing things so I suspect without looking at my contact sheets that I made many photographs of this particular tree on this particular rock and this is the one that looked most interesting when I did the contact sheets yeah it, it kind of divides the image in two diagonally with the light and the dark so it's very yin yang um, but the tree, just at the pinnacle, I just find that lovely. Um, if there were 
photos that I would like to have. It would be this one, the Kusharo Lake tree, mm-hmm. or the one that apparently you weren't able to have that was supposed to be an exhibit, another one from Huangshan with yes, about 12 yes. layers of mountains in yes. the fog, which yes. is just beautiful. Yes. That, that's the kind of photo that you just dream of being in the right place to get, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, right place at the right time with the yeah. right equipment and right preparation. Um, I love this shot of the Chrysler building. Now, I grew up in New York, and the oh, Chrysler right, building yes. is one of the things that is, is a familiar site. And again, your composition is interesting because you've shot just the top of the building with the pinnacle mm-hmm. of the antenna dead center in the photo. Mm-hmm. I was actually on a commercial shoot for this, uh, photographing for HSBC, and I was in many, many different places in New York, and I had the, the benefit of getting to the top of this uh, amazing skyscraper and being on the roof, basically photographing through the day and into the night. And this was one perspective of the Chrysler building that I was able to get. Um, I photographed in many other ways too, but this was the most, again, almost haiku-like. It's kind of just the suggestion. It's very, basically, this, you know, the sky, city, and building, and that's it, nothing else. Yeah, and, and you, don't, you don't even it's see enough. much of yeah. the city. It's like the building itself is rising almost from the sea. Yes. The, the bit yeah. behind it could be the ocean. So here's one in Venice. Um, this, I'm guessing this was shot with a Holger? No, no, this was actually with a Hasselblad. Okay, so this is, is it St. Mark's Palace and there's it a bird is. flying by? Yes, yes. Yeah. Were, you, were you there framing it and all of a sudden the bird came and snapped? It's like many things. If you wander around uh, slightly prepared, you have your camera ready, you're looking for things to happen, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so from what I remember, this is a small section of a much larger negative that I've cropped out. Which I do sometimes. Okay. You never know. Yeah. I don't always print full frame. Right. So Mont Saint-Michel. So you have a wonderful book about Mont Saint-Michel. A new edition came out a year or two ago. Um, now, I lived in France for about half my life, and I went to Mont Saint-Michel. And you go to that place, and it is heaving with tourists. And there's yes. absolutely yes. no way to see Mont Saint-Michel in its natural state. But you managed. You went at night. Is that why? I was very fortunate. I mean, the first time, I mean, I've been photographing for years and years and years. This particular photograph, of course, is made from a distance, and so you don't see the teeming masses of tourists. (laughs) I photograph very, very early in the morning before people come out to play and and shop. And I was able to befriend the Benedictine monks who lived in the monastery right on the top. At the top, yeah. And so I I was able to go for uh, four or five different uh, sessions of four or five days each, um, live with them, go to to all their services, but I was, had complete freedom to photograph. And uh, at and night... in the morning or at night or both? This, I stayed overnight. Yes. So basically at you know, 6 o'clock at night, they closed the doors, the tourists, to go into the top half of Mont Saint-Michel. Yeah. I was there alone, you know, with a few monks, nothing yeah. else. And they gave me a nice old rusty key. I was able to climb right to the top, <laughs> you know, onto the top of the roof, all the way up to the balustrade here and photograph at night. I was able to photograph inside the abbey at night. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Now the order has changed. So I don't have that special oh, privilege, yeah. but it was, it was great while it lasted. Uh, worth pointing out that on your website right now, you've got a number of photos of Notre Dame. Yes. Uh, on the main mm-hmm. page, you have a beautiful photo taken from over by the Tour d'Argent restaurant, yes. if I remember yes, correctly. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And then you have a whole bunch of others of the spire, of mm-hmm. different views mm-hmm. of it. Um, I was very sad when that fire happened because I lived in yes. Paris for about five yes. years. It was, it's such yeah. a landmark when you're in a city like that. It is, it is. Um, mm-hmm. Just quickly, one of, one of your books that I really appreciate is the book of photos in France. And there's something about that. While one could say the Japanese photos have a certain Zen attitude toward mm-hmm. them, the French photos are very French. They're very formal. They're very... Mm-hmm. Th- there's, there's not that much interpretation. They're all shapes and positions and very mm-hmm. carefully laid out. Is that intentionally meant to seem French or is just just a coincidence? I, you know, people often ask me about how you change your style, how you come up with a style. And I always say it's something to do with the conversation. So if I'm in a conversation with Japan, there's going to be a certain Asian aesthetic that goes on because Japan changes you and you yeah. change with Japan. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a collaboration. Yeah. So if I'm in France, you know, I become a little French and there's a collaboration with France. And so it's going to, that conversation is going to be different than the one I have in Japan, even though I'm the same. It's going to have aspects that will be the same. But hopefully the body of work will be different and your observation yeah. that it no, is. No, I definitely feel it. When I look at those photos of the uh, Le Notre Gardens, it's, it's extraordinary. They just, they, there's, you feel that Frenchness, that, mm. that rigor mm. of the French. It's yes. really quite yes. special. It was earlier on in my career too. You know, I, basically my yes. career can be split almost down the middle into European half and an Asian half. 
And once because I started going to Asia, my aesthetic changed. I think it became, it did become more minimal. How, how much time every year do you travel? It varies. It really does. Because um, uh, you've shot in so many different countries. Now, so I'm yeah. home a lot more, but it, you know, in my single days, it could be easily six, seven, eight months. I could be away, and the rest of the time I was in the dark room. <laughs> and, and you chose to live in Seattle, yes. the rainiest city in the United States. Mm-hmm. No, it's a good city. Any particular reason? In, well, I was in San Francisco for well over 25 years. So that was my major city when I went to the States. And, uh, and then I moved up to Portland, Oregon. And then I kept moving to, to Seattle, Washington. So yeah, I have friends in Portland and Seattle, and yes, they yeah. both talk about the rain. You, yeah, it does rain in the winter. You, you've lost right. much of your English accent. It happens. You, you, you're from, from, you're from the north, aren't you? I'm from Witness, yes. Yeah, so you yes. should have a... But I moved from Witness down to London, spent yeah. my student years in London, and, and then I moved to the States. Yeah. Accent It happens. Yes. I've kept my New York accent. I've been away for 35 years, yes. and it hasn't gone. <laughs> Okay, a, a couple more photos. I love this photo of the windmills. Yes. Um, th- this is La Mancha, um, four windmills, as if they're posing for you. Mm. Again, this was another fortuitous circumstance because my agent in London uh, represented Helmut Newton. Helmut Newton had a job to photograph for the Spanish tourist board, but the week before he got the flu or something or other, and my agent, who was very smart, saying, well, sorry, Helmut can't do it for you, but Michael Kenner could do it. And I was able to go over and spend 10 days or a week, I can't remember, in, in La Mancha, photographing windmills. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You, you, you've mentioned commercial work a couple of times. There was the one, the Chrysler Building for HSBC. Yes, yes. Um, I believe you told the story about being strapped to the um, bonnet of a Bentley to uh, take uh, photos of Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. Yes, in the, in the How much commercial work do you do? Is this like an actor does the indie movies and then does the... The, the, the X-Men movies to kind of balance things well, quite out? possibly. I mean, I was trained as a professional photographer. Um, and so I, when I came out of the London College of Printing, I you know, had to make a living. And I've had to make a living for 45 years in photography, essentially. And it's difficult to make a living by hanging photographs on a wall and having people decide whether they want to purchase them or not. So I've had parallel careers throughout my, you know, I've, I worked as a black and white printer for many, many years. Um, I also have worked as a commercial photographer. I photographed a lot, a lot of cars, and various products, and various places. Yeah, there are a lot of them. You're on, on your website. Yes, I particularly yes, like the yes. ones of Chateau mm-hmm. Lafitte Rothschild. Yes, um, I mean, in fact, there, there's one over here. Let's look at that one. Um, you're filming the a vineyard with a yes. dark sky, and you get two bolts of lightning. Was yes, that a long exposure? Yes. It is a long exposure. Yes, yes. I did a whole series of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. Um, Again, this is one of those you know wonderful jobs. I had another one for Dom Perignon where I had to just hang out in you know, Haute and you know sip champagne and photograph grapes. You know, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild is a very good yes, wine. Yes, yes, I've had a few. Yes, okay. Sometimes the commercial jobs have been absolutely fine. Mm. When when I look at your prints, they're all editions of forty five. That doesn't mean you print 45 of them and then put them aside. Do you print them as people request them as you have exhibitions? I print them as, re- as they're requested. Just in, in the very early 80s, I think editioning was just really coming in at the time. And, and uh, I just didn't want, I had one image that sold, I think, 150 prints. But, you know, I was selling them for $75 or whatever it was at the time mm. through Ghana. And I decided you know, this is not the way to go, that I really need to just say, for collectors and for myself, there's this many prints, you know, you can buy them or not, but this is the end of the edition. When it's done, it's done. Uh, and I recently, a few years ago, I changed that to 25, so it's kind of coming down, because I just I don't have enough time in the dog, yeah. basically. And so, it's, as you say, I, I print usually 10 or 15. Oh, okay, you do. They're exhibited, whatever, you know, if it's success and they sell, then I will print it again. The, the, it could be a different interpretation. That's what I was going to ask. Yes. Each time you print it again, you're going to mm-hmm. be looking at the photograph from new eyes thinking I want to do this differently so does that mean that there is a different value of number one and number 30 because they're different versions of the same photo it's a subjective value I think with the silver gelatin print in general there are no two identical prints right because it's it's handmade you're dealing with chemicals you're dealing with fractions of a second burning and dodging which I do a lot of each one is unique um, number one may be completely different from number 45 or 25, of course, because as you, you know, if you print something 30 years ago, you probably print it different now. 
but that is fine. All I'm saying is, you know, from this negative, there's only 25 prints right. or only 45 prints. You don't necessarily remember the exact burning and dodging you've done previously. No, but I always keep uh, an artist proof. Right. So I have a reference. Okay. Um, but this one, you know, you see this one is number one of 25, and the photographs were made in 1983. Right. And so this it, apparently I had on my website, which I didn't even realize, because I'd made a print way back when. It wasn't, wasn't a very good print, but I must have spent ages and ages and ages retouching it or something. And the gallery here saw it on the website and said, we'd like that for the show. So I said, well, that's fine. And I went to look for the prints. I didn't have any prints, just really bad prints. Yeah. And I said... I don't know if I can print this one. This is a really tough print. <laughs> and so this was recently printed, you know, in the, in the past month, uh, even though the negative is from 1983. And, and it's number one because I never, ever sent it out to the galleries because it just, I didn't like the print. Yeah. And, and on your website, you have a section of recent prints and the dates go in very... Yes. From yeah, this I mean, year this, to 50 again, years ago? 50, 19, 40 years ago? 1987. And it's for this, this bird is book. six birds. Yeah, it's this... Because I'm looking for photographs of birds, I went through my whole negative archive and found birds from 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, all the way through. And now I'm printing them. So it's, it's a fresh print, you know, it's, but it's, it's an old negative. And it's, it's, it's such a, a wonderful resource to have 45 years of negatives. Well, do you have thousands of negatives you've never really looked at? Thousands, yes. I mean, I've, I've seen them because I make a contact print, yeah. a contact sheet, and I, and I file it with the, with the negatives. Yeah. But you, know, but you have so many. That an image of you know that you see when you're you know 25 years of age, you know, and then you look at it when you're 65 years of age. Sometimes it changes. Yeah. You know, your perception of, of of artwork changes. Your perception of your own vision changes, and so you can go back and see. When I did the France book, a lot of that was from older negatives because, again, you know, I knew I was doing this book, and so I wanted to see what I had in, 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 in my negative archives. Do, do you know how many images you've printed? Not. 25 of one, but how many different photographs you've printed so far? Um, well, because of the, the, fi- the filing system we have of the editions, I think we're up to about 3,500. Wow. This point. Okay. Yeah. And you've done about 20 or 30 or 40 books, and so, some of them are large publishers and some of them are small. Some of them are, some of them are catalogs of exhibitions. Yeah. So yeah, we, we recently updated our website and found there were 72 which boggled okay. me yeah. <laughs> a yeah. little bit. Now I know I'm getting old. <laughs> um, just before we finish, I mentioned earlier that you did a book of photos of people called Rafu, which means yes. naked yep. women. Right. Um, I, this is an extraordinary book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a copy of it when, we came, oh, when it came out wonderful. last year. Yes. Yeah. What prompted you, apparently you'd been shooting them for quite some time, but what prompted About you to finally years. collect them and publish them? Because it is your first yes. book of pictures of people. Well, as I say, when I, was a, when I was a student, that was my final year project, was working with models the whole year, with motion and, and different, uh, different images. Um, and then, you know, when I became a professional photographer, uh, I had to concentrate on something to make my way in the world. So I did, yes, commercial work, landscapes, and, you know. Uh, and then I worked with a photographer named Ruth Bernhard, uh, very famous, yeah, of, of you, the nude. You, you printed for I her. I printed for her for about 10 years. Yeah. And she was very adamant about, you know, the males photographing females is really not very cool and it kind of made me a little reticent to kind of delve back into it and uh, but over the years I thought you know I go to Japan often I had resources there I had you know agents and, and you know they knew dancers and you know people who worked in offices and and I just began to photograph models um, very slowly and I just built up a collection and it just came to a time when I had uh, a 45-year retrospective exhibition in Tokyo. And they wanted me to print these. And I thought it was a perfect time to come up with a little book, which we did. And they were shown in Tokyo for the very first time. And most of the models came to the opening. It was, it was absolutely great. That must be and interesting. A big party. It, it is a very respectuous mm-hmm. book yes, of the of women. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. there, is a, there are nude photographs that mm-hmm. are lascivious as one could say um, there's a book came out a couple of years ago that Saul Leiter did yes. of photos mm-hmm. in his studio he never told anyone that he was doing right. these news it's yes. the same thing there's yes. not they're not titillating photos right. and, and in yours in particular they're like the Ruth Barnhart or the Edward yes. Weston yes. nudes mm-hmm. that are more about the shapes I mean, mm-hmm. some of them, you know, you could almost look at them like a red pepper, like in right, Weston's famous yes, red pepper. Yes, He's yes. looking at the shapes and the forms yes. rather than, yeah. than mm-hmm. the women. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I want to thank you very much, Michael, for taking this time. Thanks for this being This has been here. a wonderful conversation, mm-hmm. and I hope this exhibition is a huge success. Thank you very much. Me too. <laughs> okay. Well, as I said, um, 
Michael Kenna said so many interesting things about composition that really made me think about my own photography. And I came home and I looked at some of his books, and, and I have about a dozen of his books, and I looked at some of my photos and I realized, you know, there are so many things in composition that people talk about, and yet sometimes it's the simplest things that make a photo work. And if you look at some of these photos, you'll see how simple they are. And the, the term minimalist works for some of his photos, like the Sticks and Water School of Photography or that fence in Hokkaido. But not all of his photos are purely minimalist. They're just a very refined sense of composition where things are focusing on a certain point. Uh, there's one in particular we talked about early on, that wall at Mont Saint-Michel that kind of leads out toward the left, toward the sea, and, and I think that's a good metaphor for a lot of his photos, that there is leading to something. As he said, they ask questions or they're like haikus. I really like the way he said that. This also harkens back to our discussion with Michael Rubin when we were talking about composition, because I really appreciated one of the things Michael said was you were talking about the composition of a shot and how he had cropped in to make the composition that he wanted, that he, he almost rarely prints full frame. When you look at finished pieces like this, you think this must have just been what was in his head at the time, and he figured out exactly what he wanted when he was there, made the shot, and here's the shot printed. And I love the fact that we get a lot more background into his thought process and, and the developing process and how making the final print happened as much in the darkroom. You know, he, he mentioned dodging and burning and cropping. All that, there's so much more that happens after the picture is taken. Yeah, we who shoot digital, we don't really think about the printing process that much. Even uh, even oh, though you may print some of your, your photos on, a, on an inkjet printer and you might try to get them right, but you don't have the same options that you do in the darkroom. Um, the one thing I take away from this is just how important the printing process is. Not only in order to get the light correct, but the paper. Uh, in, in, I asked Michael a question by email, and, and I said something about how really interesting it was to see the original prints, because I've seen a lot of photo prints, but there's something really special about the prints he does. And he said to me, I completely agree about the original prints. I'm always startled when I view a beautiful finished silver gelatin print. I've experimented with platinum and palladium, but there's nothing quite like an original silver print. I think it takes a discerning eye to fully appreciate how jewel-like they are. And if you look at some of the photos and the detail in them, you can't really appreciate how precise that detail is when you're seeing them on the wall. Remember, these are mostly seven and three quarters inch square. That's really quite small. You have to get up close to get into the print. And I think the silver gives it a tiny bit of dimensionality with the reflections of the silver. And you don't see it as reflections, but it is almost as if there's a light coming out of the prints. I think this is also something that is largely absent from a lot of people's experience with photos these days. Because obviously, I can go to his site, I can look at our show, show notes, I can see all the images and appreciate the composition, the, the tones that he's used, like everything that I can see on a screen. And yet, if I want to see, you know, any photos in person that are made to this level of quality, that takes a lot of extra work. Like I would have to go and find a gallery, not even a gallery that has his stuff in it, but you know, I would have to find a gallery that has good works, go to it. Again, I appreciate more what goes into this side of it because I am admittedly a, a digital photographer who sees things digitally. And uh, even... I think getting photo books like like that that's one step removed as well and then you get to see the actual prints the ones that he has literally had his hands on is still another experience. Yeah, as I said I have about a dozen of his books and there is absolutely no comparison between the books which are extraordinarily well printed and the actual prints themselves. It's really it's kind of like mono and stereo. It's kind of like 8-bit color, uh, or millions of colors, and billions of colors. There really is an, an, an astounding difference. You also mentioned that you purchased one of his prints. Is it something that's in one of the books? Can you compare and say, look, I have this print of this image and see how it looks? Yes, I did purchase one of the prints. I couldn't really afford 
the one that I really liked, which was that one of the Kusharo Lake tree. Um, but the one that I got is another of the Kusharo Lake tree prints. We'll put a photo in the show notes that I took of him standing next to the print. Um, the photo that you see on the top of the page for the podcast episode is him in the corner next to that first photo of the Huangshan Mountains that I was talking about. And we'll put the other photo in. This is actually a print that I have in a book. There is a, a series of books by the publisher uh, Nazarelli, and I'll link in the show notes to that. They are called One Photo Books. And what they are is small books with an original photo. They're done in an edition of 500, but the photos are very tiny. So the one that I have is one of the Kusharo Lake tree shots that he did with a Holga. The print is about three inches square, but the rest of the book is another dozen photos of that tree. Now, the, what, the print that I bought is in the book, but obviously it's much smaller, and there's absolutely no comparison between the quality of the detail, um, particularly um, the clouds that show up um, in the original print and in the book. And again, as much as his books are beautifully printed, there is, I think there's more of a difference in the quality of his prints than most photographers because of the silver gelatin. I'm sure a lot of photographers do that, but because of the time he spends printing, because he's got 45 years of experience printing. It's a really impressive artisanal object. Um, I was talking with one of the people at the gallery about that, that, uh, you know, there are a lot of professional photographers who may just print inkjet. They'll shoot digitally and they'll print on an inkjet printer and they'll do a lot of work in Lightroom to get the prints looking good. But there's a huge difference with this type of prints. Another question that I had going into this was how much he shoots digital versus shooting film. Obviously, most everything that he does is film, and I like that he talked about that. Uh, but he also uses an iPhone, like like a lot of us. And I, I found it very interesting that he mentioned that, that printing iPhone photos, they just fall apart, he said, which... I can't really tell if that's just because he has like really exacting standards or if it's just just the the image quality uh period but I also really appreciated that he said that he wouldn't do like a book of iPhone photos not because of the quality per se but because he hasn't put in the effort or the time to do it well and that would be either making the shots or making the prints and that and that just you know reinforces that idea that you know hey what we're doing it takes practice it takes work it takes focus at any level especially you know at at, at his level or our level yeah i think the the issue with that is that he wouldn't be able to print those prints himself he wouldn't have negatives that he could put through an enlarger they would go digitally to a publisher who would print them in a book and he wouldn't have the control over the detail that he would even if he spent time with lightroom which he may or may not be proficient in it's worth noting that um, he's done a book of Holga photos. So it's not the quality of the photo itself. It's not, you know, this is a perfectly sharp lens or whatever it is. But I think it's more that he doesn't have control over the digital process. Whereas with the Holga, he has control over the negative and is able to still print it using his printing techniques, just with maybe a lower quality negative. One last thing to point out, thinking again about film versus digital, so many of his pictures are super long exposures. I mean, like leaving a camera in a field overnight. Leaving a Hasselblad in a field. I know. Like, I, I, I can't imagine it. I also like that he sometimes had to go to police stations to recover them. But um, that is actually something that's that's very, very difficult to do with digital cameras. You know, we, you can certainly do long exposures, but at that limit, you have issues of battery power. You have issues of whether that much light, that much exposure is going to, you know, fry your camera sensor, which is just not something that you need to worry about with film. Or if it is with film, you know, you, you fry a piece of film, you say, okay, that didn't work, put it in a new one, go get breakfast, start again. But it's a night's work. Um, and I'm sure he's got the calculation down pat to know according, he meters it probably and he calculates, he knows how much time it is. And with a long exposure, I'm sure you've got a latitude of an hour on either side of the ideal exposure that you oh, can, yeah. you know, work with when you're enlarging. But you mess up a photo or your camera falls down, that's a night's work and you have to come back the next day and start over. It's not like you're just, you know, shooting photos one after another. Okay. Um, snapshots. Have you got a snapshot this week in a, in a totally different register? 
<laughs> totally, totally different. Um, yeah, so uh, this week was WWDC, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. And in addition to announcing new versions of macOS and iOS and now iPadOS, that's something new and interesting, uh, there's one tiny thing that I wanted to, to highlight that is sort of a big deal for me uh, because when Apple introduced the iPad and they made it possible for you to import photos directly from a memory card into the iPad, that opened up a whole lot of interesting opportunities for working with photos on an iPad in the field without a laptop. Uh, it inspired me to write my books, uh, the iPad for photographers. It's, it, you know, it, it put me on this this path that I'm on right now. But there's always been one big annoying limitation, and that was photos going directly from camera or memory card into your iPad always had to go through the camera roll. They always had to be stored in the photos application. And then other applications like Lightroom or Affinity could grab the photos from there. But everything always had to be dumped into this one central repository. And finally, 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 with iOS 13, you're going to be able to import your images directly to either the Files app or specific apps. So, for example, you could just dump things directly into Lightroom Mobile and not have to deal with duplicates in photos and having photos uploading uh, images while Lightroom is also uploading images. Like, it just takes a big chunk of annoyance off the top. Developers have to implement uh, a specific API to make this happen, but I would imagine after years and years of, of working around Apple's limitation, they would be really interested in, in making this happen. Kirk, what do you have for this week? Well, I figured if we're doing a, an episode about Michael Kenner's photography, I have to pick one of his books. And I've already picked a couple of his books as snapshots. Um, the one that I'm selecting this week is called Forms of Japan. It was published in 2015. It's 300 pages. It's a very big book. It has 240 of his black and white images made over 30 years. And a number of the photos that were in this exhibit show up here. A number of these photos of the Kusharo Lake tree are in this. When I came home uh, after the trip, I pulled this book out to look at some of the photos. And I'll tell you what interested me. Not only do the prints look so much better than this book. In this book, the reproductions are larger than his actual prints, which isn't the case with his main publisher, Nazarelli. This is a, a book published by Prestel. Um, and it was kind of strange saying, okay, I know what these look like. I know how big they are. Why is it bigger? Why is it not the exact size? Um, now, I, I have now understood that you can't look at a print by Michael Kenna in a book and expect to see anywhere near the same thing as you see in reality. But what I can see is the shapes and the forms and the composition. And I think this is an extraordinary example of uh, fine images. And, and if you remember, I mentioned in the interview something about how his French images look very French and his Japanese images look very Japanese. And then there's something that just works here. In this interview, I, I consider myself very lucky to have had a lesson in composition from Michael Kenna as we walked around and talked about the photos and the, the additional hour, which wasn't recorded, I, I suggested uh, in an email that he should really write a book about composition. I think his photos are really great um, to study composition. And there are so many wonderful examples. So if you want to learn about composition of simple photos, get this book, Forms of Japan. If you don't have any books by Michael Kenna, you'll be very happy. Okay, I'm going to have to just... Uh negate what I said earlier, because now it's clear that you are spoiled. And you can never look at Michael Kenna books again, because you've seen the things in real life, and you're going to be like, oh, well, the reproduction of this isn't nearly uh, what, it, what it's like to see an actual silver print. So uh, everybody, forget what I said. Never go see <laughs> artwork in real life. Well, it's really the difference in the quality of the paper. Um, and again, in many of his books, um, the paper is good, but it's not the same as these silver gelatin prints. And I had no idea. I mean, I'm sure I've seen silver gelatin prints before, but seeing the detail in these small prints, seeing these really thin branches on trees, seeing the subtle detail in clouds, it was really an eye-opening experience. So everybody, uh, ignore what I just just said, because we <laughs> very much support 
buying books uh, yes. and, and supporting photographers. Uh, one last thing, I really like that he also talked about his commercial work and all the other stuff that he does because, again – you get that idea like, well, he's Michael Kenna. Like he has books, he has galleries. Like he, he has no doubt made, uh, you know, some high level of success for himself. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's, you know, fabulously wealthy. I actually have no idea if he is. But he's doing all sorts of different things, all sorts of different commercial work. We're all out here making it work. So there are different ways of doing that. And yet some of the photos from the commercial work were some of the most striking. The two that we talked about in the interview, the one of the Chrysler building, which I thought was just an extraordinary composition, and the one of the vineyard in Chateau Lafitte, which was, you know, this wonderful composition of the verticality and the horizontality, and then boom, the lightning comes in. I, that's just wonderful. Anyway, get this book, even if it's not the same as the prints, and <laughs> you'll see what I mean. Get the book and then get some prints. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app.